Hey there, I'm Danielle, and this is the Classical Liberal Project. I'm here with Jonathan Casey, the chair of the Classical Liberal Caucus. Hello, hello. And Layla Bush, uh, you're also on the board of the Classical Liberal Caucus, right? I am indeed. I am Me the vice either. chair. Oh, wow. I know, you, right? Do you ever stop being vice chair, Layla? <laughs> it's my goal to always be vice chair, never chair. She just That's, stepped down from vice chair of Washington, for those who don't know. So, Well, she, she's been a valuable asset to me, and I know she's been a valuable asset to the uh, LP Washington. So we're always glad, always glad to have Layla on board. She does a lot of hard work. Yeah, very Thank sad you. to lose you on the board this year. <laughs> well, uh, you can have fun with that. that. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Do what I can. Uh, so we, uh, I mean, this is America that we live in and we have experienced another shooting uh, and we brought Layla here to just kind of talk about that a little bit. Um, Layla, can you kind of walk us through your story and, and your experience, kind of how you relate to this issue? Yeah, sure. So back in 2006, I was working at the Jewish Federation of Greater Seattle, um, which is kind of like this umbrella nonprofit that does Jewish stuff. Um, when a angry man came in and held a young 14-year-old girl hostage to get into the building, um, he started ranting about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and after that ended up shooting uh, six people. Thankfully, only one was killed in that, um, and I was one of the victims. I was shot twice in that shooting, and so this is something, th this was an earlier time. And so when that happened in 2006, it was still big news, even though um, only one person thankfully was killed. You know, the, the guy came in on a Friday afternoon, which if you're trying to target Jewish people is not the, the best time, because thankfully, a lot of people were at synagogue. Mm. Um, so anyways, it was just it, it's it's something that's always close to my heart. And whenever these things happen, it's it's something that is deeply meaningful to me in kind of a connected way because I understand what these people are going through in these tragedies. And I can't even imagine how, it's hard to communicate how hard it is for other people to connect with that. All they see is this social media anger and rage, whether you're, you know, oh, well, hopes and prayers or, oh, we need to get rid of guns or, you know, we need to have more guns, you know, whatever position you take, it isn't, it isn't one that really is thinking about those people who have lost family members, who are potentially still in the hospital, recovering, or will have a lifetime of, of you know, injuries and problems, uh, as I have had as a result of, of being shot twice. And I think it's really important to make that human connection to this when we advocate for our positions, because I think a lot of times it gets lost. When you, you know, after the shooting, did you see any, now I know you were in, you were in the uh, coma for a month after the shooting, right? So you kind of missed out on, on a lot of the, the kind of the news cycle that I went through, but did you ever notice anything where people blaming XYZ for what happened? Were people blaming a movement um, an ideology. What were people? What were people placing the blame on? So this was in 2006, and this was still during George W. Bush's presidency. It's still close enough to after 9/11 that there was a lot of concern about terrorist attacks 
in the US. And so the big media point of contention that I uh, read about later because I was like, why wasn't this considered terrorism? This guy came to a Jewish organization who was Muslim, who had political motives and was trying to change the policy of the US. It's like fits all of the definitions of, of my understanding of what terrorism is. Um, and the general sense was that it, it kind of wasn't. Uh, this couldn't be terrorism. This was just a hate crime. Um, and so I think the media narrative was far much less into the like clear hopes and prayers versus everybody should be armed narrative at that time. I, I didn't hear a whole lot of that. I mean, uh, gun control has been a big point of advocacy for some of my fellow survivors. Um, it's very meaningful for a lot of them, which is why I don't often talk out about this issue because I have a lot of respect for those people. Um, and also it's something that I don't agree with them on. I, I think that they're looking at the wrong cause. How do you express that disagreement with them? I mean, when you're looking at, you know, it's hard to talk to somebody who's been a victim of something like this and go, I disagree that banning guns is, is, is the problem here or will be the solution here. What do you, how do you make that connection with them? You talk about making a human connection with people. How do you connect with them when they have such a, a completely opposite worldview to or world, just a solution that you, then you do. I think that the primary thing I try to focus on is that the root of the problem is hatred, anger, lack of control, a lot of these really powerful emotions that lead to these urges to find a way to lash out or get revenge or what, whatever it may be in whatever person's narrative. They may get in a car and run into a crowd. They may pick up a knife and stab somebody. They might pick up a gun and shoot people. Um, the gun is merely a tool that is a reaction to whatever things in society or our culture are leading to that step of picking up the gun. They don't just see a gun sitting there and be like, I'm gonna shoot people. Um, so I I really try hard to, to talk about how, what we really need to be having a really serious discussion about in our society uh, are why people are feeling like this is the answer to their problems. Why do they feel like picking up a gun is going to do something? And when you look at the evidence, uh, the evidence is the majority of these people are are suicidal. They are not going into this thinking that they're going to survive. The majority of these people did not get, uh, the, most of these mass shootings uh, are, are, are domestic violence. They happen in a home. They're not happening in schools. They're not happening with assault weapons. They're happening with pistols. Uh, I think a lot of their, there's a lot of misconceptions in you know, we hear about like, okay, we want to have assault rifle bans. We want to have magazine clip size restrictions and things like that. But really, that's not what is being used in these shootings when you look at the evidence. Now, Layla, you were shot in, uh, what year was it? 2006, right? Yes. What are some changes in the narrative that you have heard just as someone who's, I feel like probably just a little bit more keen on what people are saying about um, those responses? I think it really started to shift probably in 
I don't know, early, early 2010s, the, the narrative really started to shift on this subject. It started to shift more towards this very polarized view of things. And to some degree, it's always been polarized. Uh, this isn't a new idea of trying to like ban assault weapons or whatever mm -hmm. um, on the left uh, or being armed as a solution on the right. This isn't a new thing. Um, but I think that social media has calcified those views and made them much more hostile. And we feed into the, this narrative against each other uh, as, you know, oh, the hopes and prayers conservative or, you know, oh, these liberals who just want to grab my guns. And it it takes away from the the bigger story that could be told about, you know, what we can do in the media to potentially diminish the uh, contagion effect of these kinds of shootings? Should we be talking about the manifestos of these shooters or naming them or talking about how many victims they have on the media? There's a lot of rules the media has about how they talk about suicide because we know it's contagious. And maybe there needs to be some consideration of that rather than inflaming it and using it as clickbait to get more, more people to get on. And I think, so I think the nature of the media shifting more towards kind of a social media clickbait, get people's attention quickly has really come more to the forefront, but none of this stuff is, is really terribly new. Um, it's, it's just louder. Do you, when somebody asks you, or let's say you get elected, you get elected to state office. What are the solutions you would try to try to implement? What, are there solutions that you see what are problems with other people's solutions, but what, what would you offer up as a solution to try to try to mitigate some of these things? I think that I really have to start with the, um, the basic idea of trying to seek the voluntary solutions, because the fact of the matter is most homicides done with guns are done with guns that are purchased illegally. So no law is going to change that. Uh, even a, a, a significant portion of those guns that are used in mass shootings are not purchased legally, or there, there's not really any easy or quick way to identify with red flag laws or whatever, who is going to be dangerous and who is being maliciously targeted by somebody to have their gun rights taken away. And so I think for me, it's all about trying to find the other aspects that we can address in a voluntary manner. Like I mentioned the media and how the media talks about these kinds of shootings. And maybe we need to reevaluate that. Maybe we need to look at this contagion effect that, you know, I've been hearing all across uh, today and the last few days, all my friends who have kids in school are saying, oh, there's been school shooting threats. My kid's locked down. And you know, I, that's just anecdotal, but I'm guessing that that is something that I hear like pretty much every time one of these happens. Um, and so that that's a place where we can start looking for voluntary solutions. Another another place, you know, I, I'm skeptical of the armed teachers idea. I mean, I don't have anything necessarily against it, but um, I know as a kid in school that whenever my teacher wasn't in the classroom, I'd start going through their desk or someone else would. And I... I would think that teachers would need a high level of training to make sure that bad things didn't accidentally happen. A, you know, kid doing something silly as a prank and not realizing the risks. Um, as far as gun deaths as a whole, suicide makes up a giant portion of that. And so finding ways to pr 
create community support for people who are feeling, uh, having a hard time. They actually had to change one of the gun control laws here in Washington because they made transfers of guns illegal. You had to get a permit. But one of the very first steps, if you are suicidal and you own a gun, is you give that gun to somebody else so that you can't use it. And the gun control law actually made it so people weren't able to do that because mm. they weren't able to transfer the gun to somebody else without first making sure this person had a background check. And so that that was changed. But we really need to look at ways to ensure that there aren't restrictions coming in the way of being able to hand over a gun to somebody and or getting it back when you're feeling better. As far as the other source of shootings, domestic violence. Domestic violence has so many different causes, and we really need to look at the health of our families and voluntary solutions within communities of, you know, noticing when kids are having a hard time and maybe offering support. Maybe it's financial issues. You know, there's so many other ways to potentially address, you know, addiction, whether it's alcohol addiction or whatever, that might be a source of domestic violence, violent shooting. When you get to mass shootings, it's such a tiny, tiny fraction of shootings that we we can hope that we can come up with ways as a community to to reduce that number. But I think that there's a lot of low hanging fruit in in other places that we could focus on voluntary solutions in. Now, Jonathan, you live in Texas. And I have heard, I think at least 10 years that they've been arming teachers in some districts in Texas. Are you familiar with that? Apparently yes. they yeah. haven't had well, any mass shootings. Well, they, they, yeah, exactly. Well, it depends. It, it is school district by school district. Um, I think the value in that is not actually having the teachers armed. It's having people think that they might be armed. Because if there's one thing that does deter school shooters is the is the is a is a good security system is a good uh, response is a you know those types of things that is something that we have a, we have a track record of school shooters looking at and investigating which would be the easiest targets and that's why gun free zones are the worst thing right that's why it, it it puts a target on those schools so making them not a gun free zone not even regardless of whether or not you actually have teachers that are actually armed, just having that threat could be a deterrent. So I think that that's where the value in that comes from, not necessarily having uh, teachers actually be armed. Um, I, you know, like Layla says, there's, I have, I have kids and I'm terrified of them, you know, getting, uh, accessing my guns or anything like that. And I, like, that is the number one threat to them more than somebody breaking into our house. Right. So I have to, so we have, I have a responsibility to make sure my guns are secured, make sure, they don't have access to it and make sure that they and also making sure that they're educated on if they find a gun, don't touch it, leave it on the ground. Right. Um, but as far as but as far. Yes. In Texas, it obviously there's still mass shootings. And and frankly, even if you did have the best security in the world, that would that does not eliminate um, that is not going to completely eliminate the threat. Um, so it, it's one of those things. And, and in Texas, the the. Um, uh, the gun rights movement, I guess you could call it, really started in the in, in ninety uh, in mid nineties, where there was a, a shooting at Luby's, uh, where a woman had gone into, uh, well, a man came in and shot. I forget exactly how many people, but it was something like ten to fifteen people were murdered uh, by this mass shooter. And one of the women in the in the in the restaurant was there with her parents eating, and she had left her handgun in the car because she did not have a concealed carry license with her. 
And so she ended up getting elected to the to state legislature, changed the law in Texas where you could get easily get a concealed handgun permit. Um, and so that's a story of where gun, you know, a gun activist, gun rights activist has really stepped up to the plate and said, hey, no, we, we do have a right to defend ourselves. We should have the right to take our weapons with us into these stores and, and or into, into any situation, you know, except with a few exceptions. Um, so that's been one of those stories in Texas that is we have a history and a tradition of of being having the right to defend yourself um so that's a, that's a strong tradition in texas that isn't necessarily followed through everywhere everywhere around the country but it doesn't it doesn't mean that we don't have mass shootings that's the sad fact of the matter is you have crazy people you're gonna have crazy people doing crazy things that's how how it goes um one thing i was going to ask you layla is one of the what especially around this this last shooting in nashville where it was a, a, a trans person um who committed the shooting as far as far as we know i don't you know don't really have any more details than that one of the narratives has been to blame the trans agenda blame um you know the doctors or parents for this event if somebody was in your situation as a victim of one of these shootings if someone had said well we shouldn't we shouldn't be blaming the shooter we should really be blaming his doctors we should be blaming his parents we should be blaming said he was he was uh, really upset about the war in Iraq and probably blamed the Jews for it. What would he, you know, if somebody was blaming the situation behind, you know, the, the reasons that the shooter gave for the shooting as a victim, how would you react to that? Well, I, you know, as a libertarian, I believe in personal responsibility. And in the end, he was the one who made the choice to pick up that gun. Uh, he did try to um, plea insanity and it does have mental health issues, but None of that excuses him uh, of his actions. His family knew that he potentially seemed to be heading down a dangerous spiral. There was, you know, that is really unfortunate, but it doesn't mean that it's their fault that he did this. Uh, I think I think it's it's very easy to get distracted from the real issues and whatever the situation is, the mindset that it takes to pick up a gun and go shoot people really doesn't have anything to do with, you know, your doctors or a medication you're taking. I mean, I think there's been some talk about SSRIs having an impact on that. Maybe there is, I don't know if that's the case, then that's something that's worth talking about. Um, and I don't think that means it should, we should restrict people's gun rights based on a medication they're taking, or if they're seeking mental health treatment, or if they are um, you know, struggling in life. I, I just think that's a dangerous road to go down because we have to be vigilant about our rights and we can't just give them up because it might be dangerous. So I did, so talking about medication, I did look up some studies on that. And from what I could, what, from what I could tell just by looking at the data, not taking your, their medication was a far bigger influencer. Uh, my other screen here is blinking. Uh, uh, taking or not taking medication was a far bigger influencer on somebody going out and murdering people than it was uh, than than taking medication was. So you know, blaming pharmaceuticals for this, while there are circumstances where that is a possibility, is just not is not an answer. It's not a solution. Taking people off of their medication yeah. is, is 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 a is a recipe for more school shootings, not less. Especially um, if they're on antipsychotics yes, of some sort. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, so, but I kind of want to go back to that question: is if if you saw the media, if you saw social media, if you saw the media at large, 
blaming someone, blaming someone that was not the shooter, how would that have made, I want to understand how you would have felt at the time. Uh, if that would have, if that would have been hard for you, disturbing for you, if that would have upset you, um, if you, if you thought people weren't blaming the person who committed the act, but were blaming circumstances uh, around it. That's, oh, go ahead. How, how old was the individual that shot you? Do you know? Um, he was in his thirties, oh, okay. I believe early thirties. Um, okay. actually so, not much older then because this person was 28, right? This most recent. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, as far as how I would feel, you know, I have a lot of complicated feelings about that because in a way, as a person who listened to this man, yell at me about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And all I could think is I had this gun in my face was, I agree with you, please don't shoot me. Um, you know, to some degree, there is a bit of frustration about how our politics and how our, our political situation can lead to situations where people feel helpless and have those urges. But in the end, it isn't the government's fault that he did what he did. It isn't our policy and our, the U.S. policy in Iraq and Afghanistan that caused him to decide to come shoot people. And so, you know, I, I have some empathy for that idea. And also, I don't, I don't think it makes sense to blame anybody but the shooter that the shooter is the one that picked up the gun. And that doesn't mean we can't look at other causes in our society and our culture that might, might cause certain people who are on that edge um, to pick up a gun and use it on people. Uh, but in the end, all we can do is really hold that person accountable for their actions. And as soon as we start looking for other people to hold accountable, I, I don't know where you stop. I don't know how you draw a line between who is somehow contributing to the problem and who isn't. Um, and who knows who what this person's motives are. Uh, you know, I think it's a, probably a good thing that the person, I've heard they had a manifesto. I think it's probably a good thing that it hasn't been released to the media. But who knows what that person's motives were? You know, maybe they had a personal grudge against someone at the school. Maybe they were suicidal and had some really bad experience of, you know, molestation or something when they attended the school. Who, who knows? Who knows what it might have been? But none of that excuses them picking up a gun and choosing to shoot people. But that doesn't mean we should try to stop the the, the other things if we can. Because it's a whole slippery slope, like trying to manage the pharmaceutical industries. Do we sue? Do we sue Pfizer now for potentially making the medication? Do we sue the gun manufacturer? Do we sue the school for for teaching the kid before the kid shot that school up. Like, it's insane. I mean, that's a really great point about gun manufacturers. You know, if we want to talk about the the lobby uh, of, you know, the trans lobby or whatever it might be, or people with, men give, letting people with mental health issues uh, have guns, where's the accountability point? If we're going to oppose accountability for gun manufacturers, we should also oppose accountability for doctors, for people who are creating these prescription medications that people are on. You know, we have to think seriously about the repercussions when we start going down that, that, that rabbit hole of trying to find other people to blame. Well, and, and not only just the legal, you know, putting legal consequences on people for these things, it's also 
what happens if a doctor is afraid of, of prescribing medication to somebody who really truly needs it? Um, you know, do we then prosecute them for not prescribing that medication? They think that person could have done and probably maybe put them in a better mental state. Uh, you know, that is, it's a slippery slope all the way down. And that's something that we, we, we have to be very careful about. And we have to make sure that we're holding only the people that are, tr that actually committed the action are, are, uh, should be liable for that action. Um, there are certainly cases of negligence, right? So if somebody knew that they were going to go shoot up a school and didn't inform and didn't inform, there are cases like that, but that is not made, that doesn't make them responsible for the end action. It makes them responsible for not reporting something like that, right? Um, as far as red flag, as, red, as far as red flag laws go, do we have any, is there a line? Do we think that there is a line to where the government should come in and say, okay, yes, we're taking your weapons away. For me, it's, it's a true threat of violence. They make a true threat. And would by that, that's a legal definition of that. Somebody makes a threat that they can, they, that is that they are, they are, they, they are capable of making, you know, so it's, it's not like the threat of, Oh, I'm going to go throw overthrow the federal government. Well, that's not a true threat because you can't actually do that. Right. You can't actually accomplish that. Um, and that's, so you're able to make it, you actually have uh, some kind of plan to actually implement it. To me, that's a, that's a clear line, but there are, there are gray areas in, in what a doctor hears from somebody or from what a therapist hears from our parent hears from somebody. Mm -hmm. Is there a line before that, that we need to be, okay, maybe we should. What do you guys, uh, I'm curious what you, what you think. As a white girl who listens to true crime, I can tell you that there are a lot of warning signs that we see before people turn to violence, like abusing animals and children and lighting things on fire and stealing and breaking things. But like that culminates in such a huge problem, like later in life like teenagers, maybe you can figure it out, but like still some teenagers are just assholes. So <laughs> like every, I, I think Layla, you were basically saying this earlier, like everybody is different. Every cause that adds into everybody is going to affect them differently. So no, we can't like, we can keep an eye on them. We can make sure that their parents have the tools to manage their children's mental health. We can give them psychiatric beds for free if their child is scaring them. But like, I don't think that just saying like, oh, you, uh, you killed an animal once you cannot own a gun. Cause like people run animals over on accident. Like it's just, there's too many th nuances. It's too gray. Well, and I mean, who's to keep someone like that from owning a car and driving into a crowd of people? I mm -hmm. mean, there are lots of other ways to do horrific violence things if that's what your goal is. Mm -hmm. I mean, a smart person will will research it and figure it out. Um, I will say uh, if red flag laws had been in place, it's possible that my shooter may not have been able to buy his gun. His parents were deeply concerned about his mental state. Uh, there were lots of indications that he was having a lot of problems in his life. And that that still does not make me think that red flag laws are justified because there wasn't a true threat. There, you have you can't just say, I feel uncomfortable with somebody, and so we need to take away their rights. I think that this person might do something bad. So let's take away their rights. I, I, you, 
I don't know how you draw a line. You have to take a firm stand on the side of rights unless someone is making a true threat or as as Jonathan was saying, you know, really with the ability and intent and plan to carry out a threat of some sort. Um, I, I think any, I think it gets weird when you get into other territories. I think that's where potentially providing greater support for somebody like, oh man, there's these red flags. We should offer them lots of support. The community should reach out to them. We should find out whether there are things in their life they need help with. Maybe, maybe they're having trouble with their bills. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe, you know, who knows what may be happening in their life that could be stressors that would contribute to deciding to pick up a gun and shoot people. But doing nothing isn't, isn't going to help that situation. And I think I have to wonder sometimes if a sense of connection with other human beings might help when someone is in that mindset of wavering about whether it's worthwhile to not only take a gun and shoot other people, but do so knowing that they'll probably die as a result. I think that in this country, we've seen suicide rates going up and especially with young people, we've seen the suicide rates going up. Do we have, you know, as libertarians, how do we, how do we come up with solutions for this? Because everyone looks to government to make these solutions. And, you know, we can, we can point to all of these things that, you know, I think one of the, one of the, the biggest things that I like to point to on this area is, is school choice. When, when you force kids into one school where there's only one option for them and they're being bullied in that school, they're being abused in that school, they're, they're having teachers who don't understand them in that school. All of these factors can really pile up. And so you have a troubled child when in reality, they're in a troubled situation, right? Um, if anybody reads The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt, uh, and I forget his co-author, but he talks about two types of stress. There's two types of stress. There's acute stress and there's chronic stress. Acute stress is what we deal with when we're lifting weights. We get a, you know, we feel it's good for us. It's good for us to have some stress in our life. It makes us grow. It makes us develop, grows, builds our muscles, et cetera. Chronic stress is you lift and you lift and you lift and you lift and you lift. And the way he applies this is that if a child, you know, goes to school and he gets bullied once in a while, it's not that big of a deal for the kid. Kids are resilient. They can bounce back from that. But if it's day after day after day after day, this builds up that acute stress becomes a chronic stress. And, you know, if kids have a healthy home environment, they're a lot, they're able to deal with that quite a bit better than kids who don't. So, you know, obviously, you know, as a libertarian solution, how do we deal with kids who don't have a healthy, healthy home environment? And then how do we, you know, I think the easier solution is how to do, do we deal with these, with the schools is letting parents choose a different school if the kid isn't doing well in that school or isn't a good fit or find it to school with a different, uh, a different teaching model, a different way of, of teaching a different uh, environment um, that can help a kid grow. Like for myself, I was, I was homeschooled until high school. And then through high school, I was, I was unschooled. And that was, that's perfect for me. I, that was a perfect situation because I'm not somebody who sits in a classroom and learns. Um, I am self-taught on basically everything I know. Uh, so I, I, that's how I learn. And if I had been in a school environment, I would have been extremely stressful. I would have been a troubled child. I would have been, I would have, I would have been a really bad student. I mean, I was a bad student anyways, but I would have been a really bad student in that environment. And I wonder how I would have been labeled. And if I would have adopted those labels and, and, and uh, internalized some of those things and how that would have changed my life completely from where, where it is now. Um, so I, I worry about all these other kids that go into the system and they don't have a choice. They can't get out of it. Their parents aren't able to, um, or their parents don't care, you know, 
what are some other solutions besides school choice that we could that we could implement and we could we could propose and put out there to help help some of these kids get out of these environments or help them deal with these environments uh, i'm curious what you guys think mentor be a mentor volunteer with big brothers big sisters the ymca like i'm a childless libertarian and i've mentored children like i mentored one person for a couple of years um and now i you know i just try to be a pleasant positive adult as the barista at the local cafe across the street from the high school. And like, you know, that's, that's just as important as being able to choose school, like just having adults respect you. And like one kid like made a joke about a tip and I was like, I'll give you a tip if you, you know, if you want a tip and they're like, sure, go ahead. And I said, you don't have to go to college. And like, then they walked out the door, like whatever, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be something structured. You just hmm, go, yeah, go do stuff. I totally agree. I, I think the first thing is we have to have some humility with what we can do in the world. There are always going to be troubled kids. There's always going to be violent people. I mean, there's a certain number of people who are just, you know, have some kind of something wrong in their brain with, you know, they become sociopaths or psychopaths. You know, there are lots of people who are just really struggling with bad things in their life. And there's only so much, unfortunately, that we can do for people. Um, some people don't want help. And I think it gets, it's, it's very, there's a lot of pull towards trying to want to find a solution for everything, for every person. And the fact of the matter there is, is there isn't. Um, I, I agree that like trying to find those little things that we can do, creating a human touch, uh, mentoring people, as far as other libertarian solutions go, you know, if, if you like playing basketball, go down to the neighborhood basketball court at the local park and play basketball when kids get off of school and be there to just talk to them and, you know, whether or not any of them ever come to you with a question, you're an adult in their life who is who is there. And I think there are lots of little things we can choose to do, whether it's in our church, a community center, volunteering somewhere. Uh, I used to volunteer at the suicide crisis chat line, and that was uh, incredibly intense and meaningful to be able to help people who are struggling with things. You know, I I I think we should all be trying to find ways to volunteer in our community because in the end, it's those small connections that can make a difference in someone's life where they go from feeling miserable and feeling like there's nothing worthwhile to feeling like, you know what, that one person complimented me on my blouse today and I, I'm feeling good about that. It's, it's, it's something that's so small and when I was working at the suicide crisis chat, what I realized is a lot of people put on fronts. They put, they pretend like everything's fine in their life. They don't tell anyone that they're sad. No one knows until they try to kill themselves. And so I think that's where those little generosities and when you're in line at the grocery store and someone's moving too slow, don't like give them the finger or curse at them because you don't know what's going on in their life. You don't know what their mental state is. You you just don't know. And that doesn't mean that your behavior is going to cause them to go kill themselves. But if you can be a positive impact in people's lives, why not? If it's just as simple as letting someone go in front of you in line who seems to be having a hard day or struggling with a little toddler, like what's a few minutes? I think I think is one of my personal rules is is 
to act online like I do offline. Hmm. Don't always live up to that standard, but I try. Uh, and I think that that applies there too, because you, words do matter and how you interact with people and how you treat people online does actually matter. And I, I, I think with all the great benefits and wonderful things that the internet has, has done for us, I do think that it's undermined our sense of community. And it's libertarians, we talk about individualism a lot and rightly so, but we've really this, you know, in our country, we've really lost a lot of that sense of community. I, like, I don't really know my neighbors very well. Um, I don't, you know, it's, and it's because we're all very private and I, I appreciate that aspect of it many times. Uh, but I do think we, you know, one of the things that libertarians do have to offer is that we could rebuild that sense of community by getting government out of the things by saying, okay, it should be up to the community to solve these problems. It should be up to the neighborhood to start figuring some of these things out to help each other to, um, uh, to, to probably have, uh, school, uh, after school programs that are specialized to that neighborhood, to that, to that community, get involved with your church, like you're saying. So I think that that's where we can really value, you know, change this, change the dynamic that is, that has created these, you know, the suicide rates to go up, the school shootings to go up. And we can change this dynamic by saying, no, it should be up to the communities and not these bureaucratic institutions, not the police. It should be the police that goes to every single, every single mental health crisis call. There should be, you know, a way of neighborhoods actually coming together and figuring out, okay, for these types of calls, let's not have the police go out to them. Or if you do have the police go out to them, maybe have a, a health, a social health worker going out with them. In, Dal in Dallas, uh, they, that's been an extremely successful program. They're expanding it to the rest of the city. But in South Dallas, they had massive rates of mental health crisis calls. And so what they did is that is they would send out a police officer along with a social worker. Police officer would stick around long enough to make sure that there wasn't a threat. What that did was it, it meant that they, they reduced hospitalizations by like like 50 percent. They reduced uh, the, the cost on taxpayers because instead of because normally with these calls, you'd have a police officer show up and then a whole squad would need to show up to back up that police officer for somebody who's having a bad day or just being, you know, feeling depressed. Um, and, and so instead of having on tight, you know, five officers standing around with one person, you enable just a, two social workers to talk to that person to deal with, deal with the situation, help them out, figure out, okay, do they actually need treatment? Do they need to go to the hospital? Do they, uh, do they just need a ride somewhere? Many of these things that can be solved at a much more, uh, much, uh, local you know, neighborhood level as opposed to this big, wide bureaucratic level, uh, because we we really dehumanize people when we try to solve issues at a at a at a at a top level. Like clearly, there are some issues. National defense, we should probably solve that at the national issue, national level. But these other issues of of how we deal with a homeless person, you know, uh, having a having a really bad day and screaming and yelling because he's hearing voices. That's not that's not going to be solved by, you know, Dallas is a city of one million of, of over a million people Their City Hall doesn't care about that. But a local neighborhood does and a local neighborhood can find solutions uh, to, to, to deal with that situation a, a lot better than than a bureaucratic city government can. As someone who grew up offline, saw the emergence of online, um, I, I think that what we've done is we've outsourced community right we've outsourced it to our police and our city hall and our school even and and really we like i don't how do you convince other people that they need other people like it that's a very uh a, a important pillar of the mental health community right people need other people like it's okay to reach out and ask for help but like 
um, I don't know, how, how do we do that, Layla? How do we foster, how do we get other people to realize that they need other people? Do we just build those networks ourselves or what? Uh, you know, it's tough. And I think that some, this is an area where libertarians really maybe can do a little better in how we talk about individualism. Um, you know, recently mm -hmm. for my vice chair speech at convention, I found this great Ralph Waldo Emerson quote that was basically like, it basically was, there's nothing better about humanity than the fact that you can't help anyone else without also helping yourself. And so I think we need to recognize that when we help other people in our community, when we volunteer, when we, you know, deal with, help deal with our, or address an issue that is harming the community or causing problems in the community, we're helping ourselves too. And when we just say, well, that's someone else's problem. Well, you know who someone else is going to be, it's going to be the state. And so I think really we have to acknowledge that, when we don't step up and take responsibility in these things, someone's going to fill that void. And I think that Jonathan has it right, that uh, the systems uh, the government creates are incredibly dehumanizing. And as someone who's had to navigate uh, the workers' comp system in Washington state, it is horrible. It, it's just a horrible system. It's run by the state. And it's it's far worse than any private insurance system I've ever had to deal with. And I think this illusion that somehow the state is going to solve it, you know, uh, people want a solution because they care and that's OK. It's a, I care, too. We just have to acknowledge that if I can solve the problem somehow, if I can make a difference in someone's life, that's way cheaper and way better. And like Jonathan was saying, there's a lot of things that even within government that can be done that are just more efficient use of taxpayer money. You know, we of course would rather that be even less, but let's start at like lowering it a little bit. And if embedding social workers with our police officers on these mental health calls is making, saving us money, then that's a good thing. If I've, I've heard that, you know, I've seen research that supportive housing for people who are experiencing homelessness, who are dealing with addiction or mental health issues where they need to be taking a medication to stay stable. Uh, a lot of those people, supportive housing is less expensive, even though you're, the government is paying for the housing because of all of the 911 calls, the hospital visits, the police, the all of these other things that come about as a result of this person being, you know, experiencing hallucinations on the street, being homeless. There's so many other factors that actually it's less expensive if you just give them housing and a supportive environment. And so I think as libertarians looking for those, those things where we can save taxpayer money and also address these issues is a great first step towards figuring out how to find voluntary solutions for these problems. Because the fact of the matter is the, the more efficient we get in finding solutions, the better for everybody. Because, you know, even with voluntary solutions, that all still costs money. We all still would have to donate to those causes that were important to us. And, you know, the, the better, the more effective they are, the better. It's not going to happen overnight. And we have to, we have to show people how these things work because you're right. Uh, you know, a lot of times I think libertarians, they, they, they they look at some of these solutions and think of them as authoritarian, as statist and evil and, and awful. And to some degree, they can certainly have that effect. But the motivations behind them aren't 
evil and authoritarian and 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 uh, uh, fascist, right? We may look at we may look at it sometimes and think that, but the motivation behind a lot of these policies are really a desire to help people. Uh, so what we have to do is we have to be we have to express that hey, you're not really helping people by growing the power of the state. That's not really going to help people in the long run. You're going to be sticking band aids, trying to use band aids to cure cancer, and that's not gonna that's not going to be the path. Uh, that's not going to be the path to, to actually helping people. So I think if we can provide, if we can show people that actually helping people is getting government out of the way in a lot of these areas, reducing the power of the state over over people's lives, and letting communities figure out solutions, uh, that I think is going to be a, a much more effective path forward and a, a, a better way to express it and a better way to um to, to to sell it to people because we have to we have to sell our ideas if if nothing else we have to learn to sell our ideas otherwise they're pretty much useless like if you can't if you can't sell your ideas it's useless you can invent the greatest thing in the world but if you can't sell it it's useless might as well have effective propaganda if you're gonna have propaganda right there you go i love it i love it <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much, Layla, for coming on. I appreciate you telling us your story um, and and showing how you can be, you know, care about these issues and still be uh, have a principled position on them. Uh, thank you so much for for coming on with us. I, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad thank you to, for all your all your hard work with the CLC. <laughs> for those who don't know, Layla does. Layla is the, Layla edits a lot of my uh, articles and stuff. She she's the she's the person who whips it, whips those into shape. So I. I rely a lot on her so i appreciate your appreciate all your hard work thank you thank you all right well thank you guys i'll yeah. talk to you guys later yeah have a good one bye